Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. We are digging into the digital revolution that's touching every aspect of our lives, from our personal lives to our professional lives and everywhere in between. And we're delighted to have one of our digital all-star monthly guests, Tony Uphoff, who's the CEO of Thomas. Tony, welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. It's always a pleasure to have you. Hey, Bob, great to see you. And uh, thanks so much for having us on. Of course, of course, Tony, you know, it's so interesting these days The uh, I think everybody fully gets it now that if, you know, over the last year or two, there were some who wanted like, well, the digital thing is just for knowledge workers and some of these other white collar, these antiquated terms and all, but my goodness, what a boom in, in your world and the whole industrial space that Thomas covers. You know, it's fascinating, Bob. You know, I was on a conversation with somebody earlier today who's uh, very deeply steeped in the construction industry. And we, we happen to be talking, you and your, your listeners might know, there's this, these series of remarkable shortages in critical, you know, materials like lumber and steel and things like that. And the housing boom is exacerbating that. But in the discussion, she was sharing with me that the biggest challenge that a lot of construction home builders are working through right now is the digital experience of coordinating their supply chain, but also in many cases, the technology experience of home buyers. So not unlike the auto industry, a home is becoming something that infused with technology. So I, I, as I was having the conversation, I was kind of in the back of my mind thinking about our discussion today and just, you know, what, a, what an amazing time we live in, in these, you know, traditional manufacturing industrial products are converging with digital products and services. Really just an amazing time to witness it. And Tony, right, and even now sort of the, uh, in some ways, the, they partly drive it, they're partly the after effect of it, but you see, and I, I'm sure there's many others, but companies like uh, Schneider Electric and ABB and Siemens that, uh, you know, have been sort of in industrial technology, but sort of of a different kind for a while. And now these big companies, you know, so much getting into software, Honeywell and a number of others, it's, it's just remarkable to see. And I think that as crazy as the world's been in the last two or three years with, you know, extraordinary innovation, I think that all the new things that are falling into place now, and some of what you've just described, I think we're just getting, I think we're just getting started. I think the curve of innovation is going to really steepen. You know, Bobby, without question, we are at the very early stages of, of um, this, you know, can I call it a technology revolution? And if you just take cloud computing as an example, and that's traditionally the foundation with which your program looks at the world and certainly the discussions you and I have. But if you look at what's really happening there, the initial work from the early 2000s up until several years ago of cloud was really an efficiency model. You know, it was providing access to computing power and tools and applications that created a tremendous amount of efficiency. But over the last five to seven years, you're now watching companies take this technology and as our friend, our mutual friend, Sean Amarati talks about, go beyond digital transformation to now business model transformation. And I think you're hinting at that, that you know, we are just at the beginning of watching industries that we would think of as legacy, old line, traditional, whatever pejorative statement you want to have, have made. What we're really thinking now is they can be completely reimagined and business models can be reimagined. And it's happening far faster than I think the average person realizes until you get down to something that perhaps they touch or feel in their own lives. You know, 
an automobile or a home or some other th other you know uh, consumer product that they now realize has been radically enhanced by the manufacturer's ability to harness these really powerful technologies. Yeah, Tony, and one of one of one of those technologies that's roaring right in here, of course, is AI. AI in the industrial markets, and uh, I know that one of the the big topics you wanted to talk about today was why isn't big data producing big insights? But if I may stray for a second into personal territory, um, AI as a term was first used at an academic conference. This is what I've been able to uh, research in 1956. Yeah. About 65 years ago. That also happened to be the year that I was born. So um, I could say that it's a little bit, uh, you know, AI and I, we're sort of old fuddy duddies, but we're starting to, you know, maybe learn a thing or two here. We're starting to gain some applicability in the world. But 65 years old, and it was really the advent of the cloud that took it from being this yeah. largely inaccessible, mostly theoretical idea to something that now is touching the lives of billions of people and hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of businesses. So I'd love to hear your overall thoughts about uh, big data, big insights, sort of the roles Thomas playing. And if, you know, how close is AI to becoming sort of a mainstream in what's going on in some of the markets that, that Thomas serves? Yeah, I think it's fascinating, Bob. And let's let's start our conversation around the technology itself and AI. And boy, you you nailed it. Every once in a while, I'll be in a conversation with somebody, and and I'll I'll mention what you just said: is that artificial intelligence is not a new concept. It's it's got sixty plus years of history to it, and people are kind of, you know, a, a little bit surprised when the average person a little bit surprised when they when they hear that. But you're spot on. As oftentimes happens, it's the convergence of multiple technologies coming together that unlock the power of these things. And boy, are we witnessing. The, the extraordinary power being unleashed right now. And I think as you relate artificial intelligence just as a tool to be able to use, as oftentimes happens in this, you know, can we call it the Gartner hype cycle or whatever you wanna use here, I think we're, we're overestimating some of the fear that, that people have around artificial intelligence. Like any new technology, there's a lot of concern that we may not understand the implications, this is, if it's artificial intelligence by definition that imbues human intelligence and therefore artificial intelligence, we run the risk of it replacing human beings. And if you go back through history, what, what we find historically is human beings have started from the very beginning when we started to use tools, have started to use technology to augment their capabilities. And I think that's really the key, Bob. We're, we're spending a lot of time watching artificial intelligence take off in the industrial marketplaces and manufacturing marketplaces. And there's a little bit, particularly as it starts to accelerate, a little bit of trepidation that, hey, are we gonna see a repeat of some of those technologies we saw that really drove a lot of offshoring and outsourcing and, and, and job um, destruction, if you will, or transition? And the reality of, of it is that what you're really witnessing here, and we've touched on this before, Bob, but it's, it, it bears repeating, is human plus machine technology. And so I, I really would emphasize to people that are still trying to wrap their head around artificial intelligence, 
is while it's really interesting to think of the societal implications and the political implications and what might happen in a hundred years and all these types of things, the reality is artificial intelligence is starting to augment human capabilities, no different than the computers you and I are using to communicate right now augments our ability to communicate. I think that's really where, where the the value curve is going to accelerate for us, Bob. And I, I just encourage people to keep their mindset against that, that augmentation. I, I think it's very similar in its own way to virtual reality. I think virtual reality is interesting. I think augmented reality is going to be huge because augmented reality opens the door for us to use these really incredibly powerful technologies in work in education, in other areas. It's fantastic, probably gaming technology and virtual reality. I'm not much of a gamer, but I can understand the implications there. But I think that's the first thing, Bob, that I would really, you know, uh, you know, really focus on is this idea of, you know, artificial intelligence is actually augmented intelligence if we deploy it the right way. And I'm not trying to ignore societal implications and appropriate use and, and that type of thing of, of artificial intelligence. But from a professional, if not personal uh, per, uh, point of view, I think that's a bit overblown. I think the science fiction narrative there is a bit overblown. And I think the biggest opportunity really is human plus machine adaptation that's really gonna open up some extraordinary things, certainly in the markets that we operate in at thomasnet.com, but I would argue, Bob, is starting to happen across a broad range of business marketplaces. Yeah, yeah, Tony, great, great perspectives. And I tell you, you know, uh, I think I saw some a, a couple of weeks ago, and this is one of the reasons why I'm, like you, quite bullish on the potential of this and also the speed at which it's gonna go from being you know, kind of out there to being marginally accepted to being mainstream really fast. Microsoft just did a, a pretty sweeping reorganization. And what they did, Tony, they put together six units that only like 18, 12, 18 months ago were all separate. So there's uh, Dynamics 365, so the enterprise applications, Power Platform. Uh, they put their industries, the industry clouds in this group. They also then very recently added data, AI, and augmented reality. So they don't want those things sort of swimming around, you know, autonomously, independently, fragmented from these other things. They are they are structurally, you know, weaving all of those things together. And I think we're seeing um, more companies do that. Um, Google Cloud, uh, one of their top technologists over there, uh, a quote from him recently. He said. Uh, where we see mainframes, we see opportunity, um, right? That um, the great line. They've, they've uh, spun up some AI solutions that allow uh, an insurance company that's using 60 year old COBOL technology to now, uh, how do they describe it as, uh, you know, they can use AI to make predictions about claims processing. And now they can process 100 claims per second. So, I, I'm wondering, Tony, if in the same way, because I imagine industrial and manufacturing markets, there's probably still a fair number of those older systems and maybe a little uh, COBOL stuff going on there. There's going to be, a, a, I think, an astonishingly quick 
turnaround where it's not just a replacement of the COBOL with AI, but the mainstreaming of AI and this acceptance of it that's going to say, you know, we can do things with this that we could never have done before. And we're taking a lot of people who were doing some things that, you know, maybe weren't all that interesting or that valuable to the company. And we're, we're liberating them to do much higher value, more interesting and, and uh, more valuable work. I think you're, you're nailing it as usual, Bob. And I think, you know, it, as, as often happens, these early technologies, again, 65 year old concept, but now it's accelerating, particularly based on the enabling uh, technology of cloud, you're starting to see artificial intelligence take, take root. And, and I think to your point, it really behooves folks, myself included, to start to look at use cases very pragmatic, straightforward use cases. And, and I would encourage your, uh, your listeners to uh, pick up the book, Human Plus Machine, Work in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. And it's by a, a guy named Paul Doherty, who's the Chief Technology Officer, uh, Officer of Accenture. He's a, a guest on the upcoming Thomas Industry Update podcast as well. And he, he, he probably has done one of the better jobs I've seen of laying out these very pragmatic use cases by industry. So it would fit very well in the kind of vertical cloud world that we now live in. But, but I mention it, Bob, because I think that's how manufacturing, retail, uh, transportation, so many of these industries are gonna understand how to adopt this technology because at the end of the day, you can get stuck on tech for tech's sake. It really is tech for business sake. So a business use case is really critical, as you well know, having watched this through the years, to understand how to unlock that. I also think, Bob, there's kind of a fascinating, you know, adjacent challenge here or opportunity too, right? When we started the conversation, you know, you and I have shared this idea back and forth. We mentioned it last time we talked of, boy, it does seem like the height of irony that we've got these data and analytic tools and artificial intelligence and all these remarkable things around big data, but there aren't that many examples of equally big insights that we're pulling from the data. And I think where artificial intelligence is going to challenge us, but I think there's also a path forward here is in understanding that human judgment you know, is a good thing but at times, human judgment, either, either by, based on biases or as Daniel Kahneman in his latest book calls it noise, mm -hmm. systems noise or, or um, cultural noise, you know, at the end of the day, if we're interpreting what artificial intelligence has provided for us, which we need to do, there still needs to be judgment here. But I think we need to make sure that my own included, our judgments are coming at this in really understanding what the data might help us um, reflect on before we make that final judgment. Yeah, uh, Tony, as far as I know, there's there's uh, one person who lives in Rome who has the infallibility tag and the rest of us are um, <laughs> sort of bubble our way forward with uh, you know, our, our best approximations of some, but we, we don't get the infallibility tag. Um, Tony, before we, uh, I'd like to jump over into that big data topic and not producing big insights with you. But before I do that, two things. First, do you want to reflect at all on this issue of 1956 birthdays? we got AI, me, anything you want to throw in there? Listen, I want to wish you the happiest of birthdays, Bob. 
And uh, uh, I hear 1956 was a good year, um, you know, uh, but I, I, you know, if I'm in, in, a, in a local state or, you know, reasonable proximity, perhaps I could host you for an adult beverage to celebrate uh, your, uh, your birthday. I'd, I'd be happy to do that, my friend. Very, very well played, sir, very well played. And if I could, I'd like to just uh, uh, toss in a word here from our sponsor, BMC. BMC wants to know, is your business on its A-game? That's when systems are intelligent by learning from markets, where automation is paramount yet effortless, and when technology and people work as one in an enterprise. The A-game is your business at its absolute best. BMC calls this the autonomous digital enterprise. Find out more at bmc.com slash A-game. So... Tony, uh, Kahneman's book, Noise, uh, I think, I, I haven't seen that one, but you are often a recommender of, you know, terrific books, and I sure agree with you that Paul Doherty's book on Man and Machine is, is great. Would you have, Tony, a couple thoughts that you could share sort of synthesizing uh, directionally what people can do to try to get out of this trap of saying, gee, we've got a lot of data, but God, we're, we're kind of weak on the insight side? Yeah. Um, for, for those that don't know, uh, Daniel Kahneman is a Nobel Prize winning economist, and he, he was probably, I don't know if he was first, Bob, but he was an early, um, what's the word I'm looking for here, researcher on the idea of behavioral economics, which I would argue is all economics, you know, the reality of it is. And so it, it kind of revolutionized investment and economic forecasting and, and that type of thing. His latest book that he, he wrote with a couple of uh, additional offers, authors, is called noise, and it really is this fascinating um, analysis of this remarkable increase in data analytics, big data, but the challenge we're having in applying human judgment to that data. And, and on, at, at a simple level, Bob, it does a remarkable job of reminding, and I, boy, I took a lot out of it, um, that you still need frameworks for making judgment. Mm -hmm. And you know, yes, it points out that there's noise in all forms of different judgment. There's scale noise, there's pattern noise, there's all kinds of different things that they break down to help you understand that. But more than anything, what it reminded me, Bob, is you know, I think it's easy to allow these new technologies to overwhelm us and to stop us from using a solid framework for making judgment. And, and that framework can be team-oriented get more than one mind against this. It can be, how do you weight the different criteria of what you're evaluating before you make a judgment? Um, the pacing of a judgment. You know, uh, you know if, it's a, if it's a high risk judgment, go slow. If it's a low risk judgment, you might consider proceeding quicker. You know, it, 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 in some levels, it's kind of common sense. But what really hit me about it, Bob, was the timing of this book and the quality of the research that went into it is I think when we get into these eras of, you know, I'll use the expression new technologies, even though some of them have been around a while, but that are radically accelerating and, and putting at our fingertips, companies like ours, petabytes of data, literally petabytes of data that just, you know, remarkable amount of data, but it, it's, a, it's a clarion call that I think we need to stop, drop, and roll, and make sure that we're not ignoring the, the frameworks with which you make good decisions and judgments, particularly in professional arenas, 
where you know you're you're making decisions around things that can affect large numbers of people. They yeah. can affect customers. They can affect employees. Let alone judgments that get into areas of society or politics or the the criminal justice justice system. All these data tools are being used across those areas. But I think um, you know overstating the point, if you will. I think that idea of you know, really going to the second level of thinking about the frameworks you use to make judgments based on the data, I think the value of that, Bob, is gonna have to go up, right? In this era where we're awash in, in realistically, you know, pretty high quality data from every measure. Yeah. Tony, I can't help but think too, um, you know, sort of on the other opposite end of the sophistication spectrum, Right in the original movie, The Pink Panther, right? There's a data issue there when uh, Inspector Clouseau <laughs> says to the guy, does your dog bite? And the guy says, no. So Clouseau has data. The dog does not bite. Reaches down to pet him, the dog bites him. So what happened? He said he doesn't bite. He said, that's not my dog. So he didn't have the framework, right? He was operating with data, but limited data. So if people would just watch that movie a little bit more, take it to heart, and it's all right there. You know, Bob, unfortunately, normally when you use that anecdote, you were um, about to explain to me that I made an incredibly poor decision on something that I didn't have all the available data for, and you you actually adopt Inspector Clouseau's French accent. So, I, I, Frank, I'm a little disappointed that you didn't completely go there on, uh, on that. But hey, all, all kidding aside, I think, you know, what this era is really illuminating, Bob, is how often we don't stop to use a framework where we, you know, ask basic, is that your dog? Does your dog bite, right? You know, it seems, it, you know, it's hysterical to think about, but how often in daily judgment, and particularly many of us, which is most leaders in business, you know, we, we kind of moved along in our careers because we moved pretty quickly. We could spot a pattern pretty quick. We had enough experience where we could apply something we learned, you know, in a previous experience to a current experience. And, and that really in, enabled us to move along. I find myself um, thinking more slowly today than I probably did early in my career. And I say that as a positive. I mean, really going to second level thinking, stopping and inquiring. Mr. Evans, is that your dog there? Does <laughs> um, it bite? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but uh, you know, I think it's just such a classic vignette to tell this story, and I think, you know, the speed and and volume of data gives the illusion that you need to have the speed of decision making or judgment along with it, and I think that's wrong. I think we've overstated that you know, Gladwell's book, Blink, and all that stuff. I, I think we've wildly overstated that. Yes, there are mission critical decisions that need to be made on the spot. That's not the case in most businesses, however. Is it true in an emergency room? Is it true, you know, in, in you know, uh, parts of, parts of uh, um, you know, military situations for airline pilots, other things? Of course, that's true. But those are the exceptions, not the rule. And I think we're we are overstating this 
well, with all this data coming at us, we can just start fouling off all these decisions like we're fouling off pitches in a baseball game. That's actually not good, good judgment. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Tony, I just want to say, you know, fouling off pitches and, you know, great athletes sometimes reflecting on a game or a match or something will say, uh, you know, somebody say, what happened there in the third or fourth quarter? You really took it. He said, they will often say the game slowed down for me. Yeah. Not yeah. that the game itself slowed down, but for them, it slowed down. They were just able to see things with greater clarity. And there really is something to that. So the, the challenge of leadership, knowing when, you know, slam that accelerator down, when to ease up a little, and then what are those uh, related conditions, those frameworks that you talked about, where you have things in place to ensure that on the way to doing that analysis, or as Microsoft says, reasoning over the data, that yeah. uh, you've got those things in place. So it's not a series of start, stop, start, stop, trying to play catch up. It's just, it's, it is a wild way of thinking. And Tony, that seems to be something that people who talk about a data culture, they must be getting yeah. something like that, right? Yeah, well, and I think, I think that idea of a data culture you know, if you think about arguably what a culture is, it's a, it's a framework for, you know, um, living and working. You know, that's, that's what it is. And I think those frameworks of, you know, how do we make judgments? How do we make judgments around hiring people? We're awash in data, we can test, we can do all these kinds of things, but what's the actual framework we use to make that decision, right? And it always amazes me, you know, even in very, very large companies, where they, you know, they do exhaustive testing and they pay millions of dollars in recruiting fees and search fees and all those types of things. But oftentimes when you talk to individuals of what was the framework you used to suggest that Bob should be hired over Tony, it's kind of remarkable how often that is wildly subjective, even with all the other things that, that we're doing. And, and rightfully so, this is a human element. You know, and, and there is an X factor oftentimes in human interactions that is very difficult to articulate. You kind of know it when you see it. However, at the same time, human judgment is easily swayed by bias, by previous experiences, by, by the, the time of day, the day of the week, the weather. I mean, there's all these kind of wild studies that show our judgment moves around a little bit. So that discipline of having a framework and set of philosophies around how you make decisions. I, I guess one last thing, Bob, too, that I'd mention here. I'm finding in this era that I'm hearing less and less of people saying, I don't know yet. And I think part of that is because there's so much data, so much information that's available and it's moving so quickly. I think people, at times, probably myself included, are reluctant to say, I'm not sure yet. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm still thinking. And granted, there's some decisions you don't have that luxury on. If you really think about it, though, Bob, most of the time, if you're planning well and you're running businesses effectively, you do have the time to really go to that second level thinking and, and apply these types of frameworks. Yeah. Yeah, Tony, I, I sure agree with you. And, you know, uh, you, one of the things that you've been thinking about a lot lately, I'm sure, has been for your company, Thomas, right? You you switched, was it in just a matter of a, a handful of days, maybe over a weekend, from being an in-the-office company to being a, a sort of work-from-anywhere company. But how are things going there, this, this return to work? 
Bob, thanks for asking. Yeah, it was March 13th. So, you know, it's it's been an extended period of time. I think this is this has gone past how long is an experiment, right? You know, I, I, this has gone past the experimental phase. And I think like so many companies, you know, we early days of, of maybe fear and sheer adrenaline and then kind of hit a sustained stride of, of frankly, if anything, perhaps even increased productivity. The surveys we do would match what you're seeing in a lot of companies. So we have offices in, in Midtown Manhattan, as you know, and we will reopen those offices in September. We will have a modified structure in that we will be a remote first office second company in perpetuity. We have a facility also out in Horsham, Pennsylvania, which for folks on the East Coast would know it's a couple hour drive outside of New York City. With this in mind, we're constantly doing surveys and talking to our people. And I think it'll be interesting to watch how this plays out. Right now, we're seeing a relatively small percentage of people, I would put it in 20 to 25% that are saying at this stage, they'd like to regularly rotate into an office to work out of an office. By rotate, we anticipate that could be two to three days a week. It could be less frequent than that, depending on team dynamics or team meetings and things like that. What that's saying from another angle, Bob, is that 80% are saying that, you know, hey, I, th I think I'm, I'm very comfortable being exclusively, if not primarily remote, which is a really interesting dynamic. Conversely, friends of mine that work in financial services, a, a few that work uh, with tech firms made a, a different mandate that they were gonna reopen offices and everyone was going to come back into those offices three days a week. And one by one, we're almost all seeing those companies, the latest being Facebook saying, oh, well, second thought, you know, if you wanna work remotely primarily, that's gonna go on in perpetuity. Now, all, all kidding aside, I think we can safely assume that they made the guideline, they made the, the mandate, and the average person said, I don't think so. Thanks anyways. So I think two, two things come to mind here, Bob. Are, are we hitting a, a moment in time of kind of the question is who's really in charge here anyway? Right at, at the end of the day, you know, as a as a leader, and you can relate to this as well. You know, if you have leadership experience over an extended period of time, you, you'll learn. I, I used to joke that I would take the org chart and just flip it upside down, and yeah, my name should be at the bottom of this thing because that's the way the company really should operate. But but all kidding aside, I think this idea of people controlling their own destiny is not going to go away. It, it, it has been true for a long period of time, but I think technology and some generational dynamics and demographic dynamics are accelerating that. So I think I'm not going to name names, but I'm talking major companies that friends of mine are out of senior executives and, and they were stunned when they had, had provided mandates of people coming back into offices and they basically said, no, thanks, we're not going to do that. And so they've had to, to retrench. I think the other aspect about this is you know, what do we, how do we think about this as business leaders? So less, you know, less concerned that, oh my gosh, this is an uprising of, of labor and labor is, is going to dictate how labor works. I would argue that's always been the case, you know, uh, you know, to, for better or worse throughout the years. But I do think the enabling technologies, as usual, are going to, to 
accelerate a, a very different era here. What are that? What by that I just simply mean, you know, if this was simply a matter of office or calling in by phone from your home, there's not a big debate about there isn't the enabling technology that it allows to be really productive. So that's not really going to be much of a debate. I think for the first time in history, we now are at a place where we can decouple powerful work from geographic location. We, we've had hints of this, we've talked about, we've talked a good game, but I think we're really at, at an interesting time. And not only does it put, I think, additive pressure on how you manage culture, how you manage uh, and lead people, but I also think it says something about the potential of various equity classes. In essence, it's possible if you look at three days a week, and we've talked about this, that's a 40% decline in the value of my commercial real estate. Hmm. So if we're suggesting that a 40% transition of the equity class of commercial real estate is moving, where's that moving to? Is that moving to residential houses? Is that moving to technology? Will that move to labor costs? Right. Well, that you know, I think there's a lot of implications for leaders to be thinking through in in, in this area, and the, and it goes beyond whether we're going to use Zoom or some other uh, you know video technology. And you've seen a few things about um, you know talk about the you know ultimate frontline people uh, over the last 15 months. Nurses are just I, I don't know. I think the numbers approaching 50 percent of nurses expected sometime this year they're going to become independent contractors, and they'll say. Okay, I survived this. I got through it, but I'm not doing it again. Uh, I've got skills. I've got capability. I've got experience. Yep. There sure as heck is demand on the other side. So, again, uh, you know who's in charge here, right? Yep. The, that used to be. You know, you could picture those things of people in various works, nursing and others, going and looking at this shift like, ah, oh, crap. You know, I'm going to miss two more of so and so my kid's ball game. I'm going to miss this. PTA meeting so on. I I think you're right that the uh, that issue of who's in charge and then to me that swings around to the notion of leadership. It's like you got a choice, right? You can say, well, may I go and crack a few heads and you know they'll they'll get back in line. It's like, yeah, you're right. You know, of course, I would give that a try. See how it goes for you. Uh, see you on the unemployment line. But instead, like, how do you do that? How do you accept where we are? Accept the cultural change, except this sort of mandate of people saying, I want more control over what I do, where I do it, how I do it, when I do it. And ultimately, Tony, a, a point that you and I have railed at for a while, like get over this stupid idea, outdated idea that HR is a back office function. Yeah, yeah. so true, Bob. Finance, HR, these things that these are, uh, and manufacturing, right? These are gonna become frontline things. So uh, I, I, I hope that this is one of those triggers that pushes forward some of those changes. And I think the most enlightened leaders are starting to get this and say, okay, there's, there's clearly not just a new day, there's a new millennium yeah. that's bond on us. How do I take best advantage of this and work in a way that's gonna make everybody uh, feel like they've got a huge voice in this? You know, Bob, as you're, as you're talking, I'm conjuring up that, that comment, and I'll probably butcher it here, but you know, the, the future doesn't fit cleanly right, into the containers of the past. And, and I think this is just such an acute moment of that right now, and, and such, a, such a, um, a smart comment about human resources. Right? If you look at you know, 
the, the recruitment, the retention, the development of human capital. I, I can't think of anything more important in any business in any industry, right? And, and while a lot of us say those things, are we really organized for that? Mm-hmm. Have we really you know, uh, allocated resources accordingly based on that. And, you know, if if you look at what we're describing here, Bob, if starting to shift how we use offices, you're going to see companies that over time, we use that to just drop more money in the bottom line. You're going to see other companies that are going to take that and to say, hmm, okay, can I allocate some found resource in terms of capital here? and to put it against what I think is the most valuable set of assets that we really have, which is really human capital. And again, easy words to say, exactly what does that mean? I, I think the other thing that's related here, Bob, is something you and I've talked about before. You know, it, it's entirely possible that for the same reasons that you and I are describing, the same drivers, that we may see a, a, um, a higher level of what we think of as turnover, for the foreseeable future, you know, many of us thought, well, this is gonna, we're just gonna have one caveat, you know, asterisk, pardon me, year. Uh, well, the turnover rate was 5% higher because it was the pandemic year. It's entirely possible that some of the things you and I are describing might um, push forward a bit of, of a free agent. You know, uh, while that's not new, it might accelerate that. And uh, th- therefore, you know, I think an, an added both opportunity but complexity for business leaders to understand what that might mean. You know, I don't know if we'll get to a salary cap and other things that'll uh, that'll emulate uh, professional sports, but I do think if you watch professional sports and and the movement of athletes, particularly in leagues like the NBA and their ability to to change teams and bring free people with them and reorganize in ways that benefit them and their careers. I'm not suggesting we're going to see quite the same dynamic in, in a lot of other industries, but I, I think a lot of the, the drivers are similar, meaning that the, the flexibility and if, if, you're, if you're in an industry where you believe you have to force people to come in and work a specific way to do a task that they can accomplish in another way, I think that's a moment of reflection. And I, I, again, I go back to the framework discussion and just... That, that's a judgment you might want to think about and and do some incremental um, you know planning around. Yeah, Tony, um, I was puttering around here. I, I wrote down and, and cut out that quote of yours, the future doesn't fit cleanly into the containers of the past. I love that. And uh, there's a similar one that uh, that I like the the author William Gibson has said that the future is here already. It's just not evenly distributed. Yeah. And so, uh, right, there's going to be wild levels of turnover, 40% this year. It's expected among, so close to half of the people are going to go. So new time for leadership. How do you sort of embrace that? You talk about make the trend, be your friend and so on. I I think that's a great way to go. Mr. Uphoff, I think as always, there's there's lots of great ideas you've kicked around, um, raised, and question. Um, I, I thank you. Now I've got you in for sponsor me to a, a dinner of my choice at a restaurant of my choice, I believe is what I heard for my upcoming birthday. That's very kind of you. And I know we've got several hundred 
few thousand uh, witnesses to that. So not that you'd need that, but I'm just saying. So thanks for that, Tony. And uh, any, any final words of wisdom you want to impart here before we wrap up? Hey, well, first off, a, 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 an early happy birthday, my friend. And, and uh, I, I think as usual, when we get into these conversations, A, I always really enjoy them, but um, I, would, I would emphasize to your, your listeners something that many of us have the good fortune of, of being able to see slightly around the corner, A, based on experience, but B, based on having access to some of this remarkable information and the insights from people. And, and this is a truly extraordinary time. Um, we are at, a, at a, a, an inflection point where the enabling technologies, our ability to understand how to use them um, and, and the, the adoption of them are all within relative orbit. And, and that doesn't happen all that often. And when it does, you tend to see a lot of uh, change. And, and a higher velocity of change. So exciting times, times that are, can also be very challenging, but I think overall, Bob, super, super exciting times for everybody. Yeah, um, and Tony, just before you go, it was uh, half my lifetime ago, it was 32 years ago when I first uh, asked the CEO of the company where you and I both work about uh, living and working remotely. And the answer that I got was, well, how will I know you're not goofing off if I can't see you? So uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was not that long ago. And on the other hand, like, wow, that was a long time ago. So yep. uh, yeah. And I'm just going to let that one sit too, Bob. Just, I think that one just, it, it speaks for itself. Is that how you, is that the right descriptor there? And um and there's probably a lot of those similar things that some of us are saying today that in not so many years, we or others might look back on them and just wonder what well, and, so thinking. And, and Bob, not to belabor it, but I, I think isn't, isn't that such a fascinating vignette into the shift from control to enablement? Yes. And again, easy yes. words to say. But I, I think oftentimes as somebody who grew up involved in sales and, you know, it, it, as you get along, if you survive in that business, particularly as a sales manager, what you realize is your job is one of leadership and enablement. It's not actually in controlling the people who report into you. You, you know, your, fir your first year, you make all those mistakes if you think, you know, I, I'm going to control these people and see how hard they're working today and all those types of things. And there certainly are times you want to monitor what people are doing or not doing. But pretty quickly, you kind of realize, oh, this won't scale unless I can enable people and empower people. And, and I think that fascinating vignette is a great example of somebody who likely was struggling with that shift. And I think today, well, it's a great place to leave it that that's a that's an overarching shift we all need to make is you know as leaders our role is to empower and enable that's going to drive success and scale today versus if you want if you want to control people you're going to have a very small business these days words to live by well brother thanks a million tony uh always a treat thank you so much great 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 conversation wonderful and uh may i wish you please a, a fantastic summer Thank you, Bob. You as well, my friend. Look forward to who I seeing you soon. All right, folks, and to all of you out there, thank you so much for being with us here at Cloud Wars Live. Hope it's been a, a fun conversation here with Tony Uphoff, the CEO of Thomas. 
We look forward very much to seeing you next time.